You're listening to the sermon audio from Midtree Church. If you like what you heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at midtreechurch.com. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day because it is a day that you have made. We thank you for your people gathered, and we recognize that as we come into this place, anyone who claims the name of Christ, anyone who has been turned in from an enemy into a son and a daughter, a child of yours, Father, that we can gather together and look at the goodness of your word, that we can be encouraged. But Father, I pray that we would also remember this. That just because of where we live and just because church is a cultural thing, not all of us are born, none of us are born sons and daughters of God. It is nothing that we earn by merit. It is something that is simply given to us by your mercy. And so as we sing and as we worship, as we see testimonies this morning during baptism, my my prayer, God, is we would just be a people that are hungry for the mercy of God, That, that we would feel within our own souls the need that we have for you to not give us what we actually deserve, but in love, give us the very thing that we do not deserve. And Father, out of that great blessing that you offer us through your Son on the cross, I pray that it would spur us to live lives that are not selfishly inclined, to live lives that are not pointed at ourselves or our name being known or made great, but instead that we could lift our hands, lift our voices, and lift our lives and say it's all to Jesus, all to Jesus, that his name may be seen and known and glorified. This morning, God, as we read what is a a very difficult text that points to the greatness of your judgment against sin, I pray that all the more we would see the greatness of your mercy through Christ to those who trust in you and repent. And we ask all of these things in the name of your Son. Amen. On a uh, summer day not different than the ones that we've been having lately in August, I was climbing a tower at a camp. It was a summer camp. I love summer camp. I've always loved summer camp. And I was probably 18 or 19 years old at the time. Uh, I, I was just there to help out. And we were climbing the tower that overlooked a, a, a very large lake. And underneath that tower was a blob. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? It's okay. How many people have been blobbed before in their life? This illustration is going to be lost on most of you. Okay. So we went up there, and what this great air pillow that sat below this tower was situated on the lake in such a way that one person would jump off of the tower onto one end of the pillow, and you would put some helpless victim on the end, and as soon as that person came down, they would go off. And you always had to play the weights. You couldn't put some little bitty girl on top and then a big guy counselor down at the bottom. He just kind of rolled off and it wasn't anything. You also couldn't reverse that because that's how children die at camp and that's why we have waivers. But one day we got a little froggy about it and the youth pastor was not me and he was not around and his kid who happened to be the most annoying kid at the camp, we'll call him Forrest because that was his name. He came up and was just driving everybody crazy. So one of the counselors looked at him and they said, hey, man, we're going to blob you. And he was like, oh, that's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. So this eight-year-old goes up the tower, jumps off, goes down to the edge of the blob. And instead of one counselor going to the top of the tower, the two biggest guy counselors that we had went to the top of the tower. And instead of just jumping, they climbed from the tower on top of the railing on the tower, and then they jumped. And when they jumped... They timed it so perfectly. You know, if you go boom, boom, it ain't going to work. So perfectly. And all of that judgment, 
on Little Forest came down at one time. And I'll never forget this because I, I was on the tower when it happened. As soon as all of that force came down, Little Forest. And this is the funniest thing. If he was sitting further on the blob, it would have just shot him forward. And he would, right, across the lake. He was in the perfect, most imperfect place he could have been. And I remember standing on the tower and watching him like this. And all of a sudden, all of the jovial, warm laughter turned into absolute silence. As we watched this little child spinning in the air and did not know if he was going to survive. That's what I think about when I think of Exodus 11. And I'll tell you exactly why. We're going to leave Forrest in the air for a minute. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, and now we come to what is the forecasting of the climax of the judgment of God coming down. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And Moses has been watching this. He's been watching it very close because he's been the one holding up the staff. He's been the one saying these things, and then destruction comes. But if anyone's been paying attention, each plague gets progressively worse than the one before. They've moved from inconveniences to country-destroying plagues that are taking the lives of people and, and, and livestock and their welfare. And God looks at Moses and he says, I've got one more. And Moses knows he's seen this, so this one's got to be difficult. And here's what we read. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt. All of that wrath, all of that weight. Now you see why I'm thinking of the block. All of that coming down in one place and at one time. And then we read this. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Finally, Moses has at the tip of his tongue, at the tip of the timeline, the great salvation that God had been promising. He has right in front of him that when I bring this judgment, you are going to be free. And not just set free, you are going to be completely set free and driven out. That's why I think about Little Forest on the blob. Because the more wrath, the more judgment, the more justice of God that we see come down... By his grace, the more mercy is lifted up. See, a lot of times in our culture, we want to pit one against the other. We want to say either God is just and, and he, he is a wrath-bringing God or he is merciful. That, that's usually how we want to play it. Well, my God would never do. Well, my God would never. Well, the problem is whenever somebody says my God would never and then they talk like that, that's fine. It's just their God isn't this God. It's not our God. Because judgment and mercy work in tandem. In fact, without judgment, there could never be mercy. It's like trying to walk, lifting two legs at the same time. It's not going to work. They work in tandem. And so the first point, and really the point that's going to carry us almost all the way through the text is this. The righteousness of God creates space for the merciful love of God. And of course, this makes sense. If you're a parent that's about to discipline a child, you can't show mercy until they've done something to, deter, to deserve discipline. But once that, that space is created, now mercy can come in and we can get eye to eye with our child and say, this is what you deserve. And yet, out of the mercy that I have been shown by God through his son Christ, you are going to receive mercy. Don't use this mercy to continue to sin because there is an expiration date on this. 
One of the things that's so interesting about this is at this point, we don't even know what the 10th plague is. Now, most of us do because we've grown up in the church. We've read this story, but Moses doesn't even know yet. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the text to about verse 8. And all that I think, I, I really want you to see, there's always way more in a text than we can preach in a Sunday. But what I really want us to center our eyes and our hearts and our minds on is this. Look for the judgment of God. And whenever you see the judgment of God, watch to see the mercy of God as well. Because they work in tandem. So what do we see in verse 2? Speak now in the hearing of the people. That word is incredibly important. Because at this point, the 10th plague is only being forecasted. And Moses is telling the people, God is telling the people, go to your neighbor, go to the Egyptians that have oppressed you for 400 years. And I want you to go to the people who have taken everything from you. And I want you to look them in the eye and say, can I have your most valuable possessions? That's what I want you to do. And what I find so fascinating about this is if we fast forward and we look into Exodus 12, 35, here's what we read. This is afterward, after the plague has done its duty. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked. This is referring in past tense. In other words, the people of Israel have seen God show up in such a way that those who used to doubt are now steadfast in their faith enough to go to their oppressors and say, I'd like for you to give me gold and silver. It's easy to fall into prosperity gospel. Just put a pin in that. We're not going to. All I want us to realize at this point is they went before the plague came. There's faith that is building in the people of God as they are seeing God say, I'm going to do this and then he does it. I'm going to do this and then he does it. I'm going to do this and then he does it. Which to me is important for us to in some way remember the good things that God has done for you in your life. Remember the times when you were in the valley that God set you free from. Write them down. My, I, I've said this a million times. My wife has these little glass jars that she puts rocks in, which makes no sense to me because we have four little children. And it just seems like we're going to be sweeping glass up off the floor all the time. But on those rocks are written little words or little statements of us walking through difficulty and God showing up. And when our kids, right now they're oblivious. They don't care about a jar of rocks. They care about Nerf guns and stuff like that. But one day... They're going to look and they're going to be like, Mom, it's really weird that you're trying to grow rocks. That's not how it works. I've, I, I know I'm homeschooled, but I still know that, right? And so the point is to put on display that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Why is Moses writing this in the first place? To show that God is faithful. And his people have begun to believe in the faithfulness of God. And at the same time, the Egyptian people are beginning, with the exception of Pharaoh, the Egyptian people are wising up. Every time this guy says something's going to happen, it happens and it's bad for us. And what we looked at last week was many times it did not happen to God's people, but it did happen to the Egyptians and they begin to wise up to this. What's phenomenal is that when they cried out to God, their only cry was deliver me from slavery. And God says, not only will I deliver you from slavery, but I will give you a hope and a future. You see, this money was not to buy a Cadillac. This money was not for them to get the nicest camel on the Sahara. That's not how it played out. It was for them to use to build the temple of God. To, God was resourcing them to do the very thing he was calling them to do, which was go 
and worship him. And God is the one who is providing a way for that. The gospel is more than a do-over. It's more than a you were a slave, now you're not a slave, blank slate, try again. If we were all given a second chance, we would repeat our same mistakes. Because the the gospel is more than a do-over, it's a never done. It's God looking at us as though we had never done the very things that deserved his wrath. And more than a never done, it's a well done. It's God looking at his people and saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And yet, how many of us have been good and faithful servants? We see this in Psalm 103. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? Because the righteousness of God creates a space for the merciful love of God. Verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every, this is where it gets heavy, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Why include the cattle? Well, one, they were worshipped, and we'll see that in a minute. But secondarily, what God is putting on display through Moses proclaiming this plague, which is going to be a life-taking, a wrath-absorbing plague, is simply this. It does not matter how high and how great you are. It does not matter how lowly you are. Everyone who is in Egypt, everyone who has not turned and trusted that God, Yahweh, is who he says he is, is going to feel his wrath. That is not a fun thing to say. It is not a fun thing to talk about. And most of the time, that's exactly how Christians walk around and do their lives. We don't talk about wrath. We don't talk about judgment. We don't talk about sin. But here's the problem with that. When you're not talking about wrath, when you're not talking about judgment, when you're not talking about sin, you're, you're neutering mercy. See, when you erase all of the darkness from a place, the light doesn't shine as brightly. When you tell others or you tell yourself that you may not be perfect, but you're pretty nominally okay, you are erasing the power of the blood. You can't actually do it, but you're trying to erase the power of the blood of Christ that shows this great disparity between who we actually are in and of ourselves and what God offers us in his mercy. And we see it from the term that's used, firstborn. You see, God had referred to his people, Israel, as his firstborn children. And yet, those are the very ones who Pharaoh and Egypt had gone after. You you remember Moses started the story in a basket. The reason Moses was in a basket was because the kid who lived on the left and the kid who lived on the right that was born in the same time at the same place, they didn't go into a basket. They went into the bottom of a river. And God is looking at 400 years of his child being oppressed, hated, abused, killed, demeaned. And the expiration date has come. 400 years in the making. And God says, you have killed, you have harmed my firstborn for 400 years. And the sad thing is, it didn't have to come to this. Pharaoh, why couldn't a staff turning into a snake been enough? Why couldn't Moses showing up been enough? Why couldn't it have been this plague that was just an inconvenience or that plague that cost your country a lot? 
Why couldn't it have just been that? The reality of it is, it didn't have to come to this, but it did. Because none of us have hearts that are soft to God from the start. God knew that there was no way Pharaoh and Egypt, and later we'll see even Israel, would learn simply by mercy after mercy after mercy. We would take advantage of it. We would never appreciate it. We would swim in something we didn't deserve and abuse it. And so instead, we realized that while it didn't have to come to this, it did have to come to this. Not because God is evil or unjust or mean, but because our hearts are hard. And until God steps in and shows us what we deserve, we don't even know to cry out to his mercy. And as this is happening, blood is being shed over doorways. And God is passing over the wrath that would come into those. We'll see this in the chapter to come. But what I think is so important to notice is the same judgment that God places on Egypt, the death of the firstborn, is the exact same judgment he takes on himself in Christ. That's why Christ is referred to as the Passover lamb so many times. Somebody was dying either way in every house in Egypt. Do you see that? Either a lamb was shedding its blood that someone else wouldn't die, or somebody was incurring the wrath that they actually deserved. Everywhere there was death in the land of Egypt at this point, and Jesus is that Passover lamb. We see it all throughout Scripture, but just two places. Isaiah 53. And we, like sheep, so we are like the sheep, have gone astray. Merit, zero. Earned, zero. Deserved, zero. Hard-hearted, you betcha. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. That's another word for repent. It's the opposite of it. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. Not us, for those who are trusting in Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he, Jesus, opened not his mouth. If anyone could have claimed injustice, if anyone could have claimed this is not deserved, it was not the servant at the handmill in Egypt. It was not Pharaoh and it was no one else. It was Jesus on the cross looking to... He was the one who could have said unfair. He was the one who could have said unjust. But 1 Corinthians 5 puts it even more clearly... For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate. And celebrate the festival and on and on it goes. How can we go from death to celebration? In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. For everyone who, who is trusting in Christ, you are welcome to the table. And when we look at the blood, we're going to look at the blood that was shed just like they did in the Passover. And we're going to realize that what I deserved was not given to me because somebody else took the punishment for me. We're going to hold the bread and realize that the brokenness of the body of Christ is exactly the same brokenness that we deserved. But instead of walking out of here tearful and broken, we walk out in celebration. Why? Because the purchase of his people was done that they may find life and life abundant. That's what God is calling us to. Jesus had all the merit in the world. Let's look at two more. Verse 6. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Remember what we're looking for. We're looking for as judgment comes down, mercy explodes forth. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. That same word, a great cry, is the exact same word that we read in chapter 3 when God says, I have heard the cry of my people. 
You see God turning the tables? That's what we're seeing happen all through chapter 11. God is, after 400 years, finally turning the tables the way they ought to have been. The Egyptians will cry out in the same way that for 400 years the Israelites had cried out. And then when we go on to verse 7, somebody wrote me a note about this when we were talking about distinction. Because this really is one of the most unique ways that God shows the distinction of his people. Verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. Either man or beast. Why? That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In all reality, play this thing out. Just play, let, Let's pretend for a minute we're actually living there. Not people sitting in a barn in, uh, what is it, uh, 2019 when stuff like this doesn't play out. Imagine for a minute that your neighbor lost their child because you were still in the country. What would you expect? I'll tell you what you would not expect. What you would not expect is for them to say, here's some gold and here's some silver. What you would probably expect is what... Quasimodo saw coming down, or Frankenstein saw coming down the road as pitchforks and torches. And we're going to, you know what? If your God is going to take my kid, I'm going to come and I'm going to take yours. And God says, here's the deal. All of my wrath is being poured out. What that means is there is a space created for an incredible amount of mercy. And not only is no one going to knock on your door and come looking for you. Not only is no one going to point to you and say, you made this happen. The Egyptians are realizing their own sin, with the exception of Pharaoh. Not only that, not even the dogs are going to look at you funny. When you start walking out, that dog that you pass all the time that runs down, and you're like, and you just throw stuff at it. Do any of you guys know? Okay. So that dog, that dog, all of a sudden, on that day, you're going to walk by, and he's just going to be like, no, that makes sense. You should really leave. Whatever I have done to you, whatever our people, you should definitely be going. It is only right. That you do so. Finally, verse 8, as we look at the judgment of God coming down, creating a space for the mercy. And all of these, remember Moses is speaking here, talking to Pharaoh. And all of these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses... Just a heads up, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Don't be surprised, you haven't yet, and I've told you this, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. There is still a little more wrath that has to come down on the blob of this world so that the fullness of my mercy, the completeness of my mercy, the freedom to to fly in ways that you think you're not even going to live from can be created for you. This to me is what I think is the most appropriate and the most exciting of all of these. Jesus is all over the pages of Exodus 11, but maybe more here than anywhere else. Pharaoh is now going to lose support of his people, his servants, and his officials. God does to Pharaoh. Remember, it's all about tables being turned, judgment coming down, and mercy being seen. God does to Pharaoh exactly what Pharaoh did to Moses. Do you remember what Pharaoh did to Moses? Moses shows up day one, and he's all timid, and he's all humble, and he's all whatever. Now he's hot with anger. He's like, I know that I'm right. I know that God is before me. Why won't you just relent? Why do you have to make this happen? That's where he is now, but that's not how it started. It started with Moses saying, man, I stutter. I'm not any good at this. Can't you send somebody else? This, that, and the other. Going before Pharaoh, yeah. 
And he went to Pharaoh and he said, God's telling you to let his people go. And Pharaoh says, hey, I'll do you one better. What I'm going to do is not let them go. In addition to not letting them go, how about I get that straw back that I've been giving them? I have been so merciful giving them straw. I'm going to take the straw back. You guys go ahead and keep making bricks. And oh, you can't. Then we're going to beat you and punish you even more because I want the name of Moses and the thought of Yahweh to cause a stench in the nostrils of the, the Israelites. I want God's people to think of him in such a way that makes them cringe. And now God has taken that and completely reversed it. Pharaoh's people, his officials, his servants, all look at him as the bringer. In fact, we read this last week, just let him go. They look at Pharaoh, and Pharaoh finds himself very alone. Because the Egyptians are pliable. Take our gold, take our silver. The officials, we bow down. Please go. We are asking you to go and worship your God. The mercy of God that is found in his righteousness could not be more on display. Do you understand what I'm saying there? In this place, the, the Pharaoh being all alone and everyone in Egypt coming to the place where they're like, hands up, we submit, we, we could not more see the mercy of God because of his righteousness. And I think it gets to a point where Egypt doesn't see Israel as a cancer that has to go. They actually begin to see Israel as the cure and recognize that they themselves are the cancer. And the reason that I believe this, the reason that I think the text makes this very clear is because when they leave, we've said this so many times over the months that we've been in this book, when the Israelites leave, they don't leave alone. With them is this mixed multitude of people, including Egyptians that are going with them. And those Egyptians are the ones who have wised up to the fact to say, we must be the cancer because you are the one who has the cure. When all of my livestock died, yours lived. When we were... Covered up in darkness, you had light. When we were covered up in boils, your skin was clear. We must be the cancer. You must be the cure. May we come with you. And that's exactly how God desires to use those of us who have been found in his mercy. That we live our lives in such a way that the people who have bought into the lie of whatever it is that they are running after would see that that thing cannot cure them. It cannot bring happiness and it cannot bring contentment. The only thing ultimately that can is Christ. So it is no surprise that they do not leave alone. Point number two, before a righteous God, Jesus is the only worthy advocate. Pharaoh is abandoned by his people. He stands before God completely alone, just as Moses did. Moses, take off your shoes. Yes, yeah, sure, he takes off his shoes. But Pharaoh didn't stand there in a humble way. He still stood there thinking he was the God of his own destiny, which is exactly what his culture told him he was. But every one of us deserves to stand alone before God. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If you've been given mercy, it's not mercy to sin and sin and sin and sin. I'm writing this so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, this is important, we have an advocate. That word we is massively important because John is not writing to a mixed multitude of different believing people. He is writing to Christians. And what he's saying is, if you are a Christian, if you are believing in Christ, if you are trusting in God, not in yourself, if that is true of you, then we have one, an advocate. That advocate is two, with the Father. The advocate is number three, Jesus Christ. And how do we know Jesus Christ? As the righteous. 
before a righteous God, Jesus is the only worthy advocate. It, it boils down to this. If a guilty person wants mercy before a judge, you better have a really good advocate. Okay? Now, that plays out in really unjust ways in our world if you pay for a really expensive lawyer. But we all have seen this happen. When I went outside and blew stuff up and caught things on fire because that's what was fun. If my friend said, oh, no, 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 it was an accident and there were enough of them. That's a really bad example. My mom never would have bought that. Okay, here's a better example. When I accidentally threw Mike's wrestling buddy in the pool. Okay? Y'all remember those wrestling buddies? They were the pillows of Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. Okay, we wrestled with them on trampoline. When I accidentally threw it into the pool, and Andrew was like, no, no, it was an accident. It was an accident. The guy sort of bought it. It wasn't an accident. He was driving me crazy. So I threw his wrestling buddy into the pool because I knew it was going to upset him. But I had a good enough advocate, and I got out of it. When I went to a neighborhood I wasn't supposed to be in, jumped in a lake that I wasn't supposed to go through and swam across it, I was trying to creep in my door and I opened it, and my mom was right there looking at me in my white duck head shirt that was no longer white because it was covered up with the lake. I had no good advocate. So what happened? Wrath rained down. <laughs> That's how it plays out. There is only one good advocate before a righteous God, and that is Christ. But Pharaoh could not be more alone. In fact, God has systematically been disassembling everything that he could have trusted in. His people are leaving him. His officials no longer trust him. And even the gods that he put his faith in are crumbling apart. I'm going to show you a couple. This is an image of Hapi. This was the god over the Nile, specifically the flooding of the Nile. We talked about Hapi before. You may say, those are two gods. Well, it's actually one. That two god had two parts, and I'm not going to go any further than that. Finding pictures of this was very hard because we have different age groups. So, kids, I'm glad you're in here. But you do make my life a little bit harder when it comes to Egyptian hieroglyphics. Nonetheless, what do we see? We see the god that Pharaoh would have looked to, that his people would have looked to, bloodied at the Nile, crumbled. Hecht was an Egyptian goddess of fertility. She had the head of a frog. Does that sound familiar to you? In fact, this is fascinating. In fact, in hieroglyphics, the symbol for 100,000 is a tadpole. Because frogs were known to multiply and multiply and multiply. And God went up to him and says, oh, you think frogs multiply? Time out. Let me show you frogs multiplying. And they end up in pots and stews and everything else. Hathor was a fertility goddess. When you see her, she's going to have these little horns coming out of the top of her. Sometimes she has the head of a bull. You got that one back there, Bruner? If you don't, that's, there it is. You see those little horns right there? Sometimes she would have the head of a bull. Why? Because they were worshipped. Even the people of Israel, when they go out into the wilderness, and Aaron says, this was not, he needed a better advocate, okay? Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's like, okay, well, I guess we're going to build a god and an idol to worship right now. And when Moses comes down and says, what were you thinking? Aaron says, we threw in this gold, and out came this calf. Sorry, bro, you needed a better advocate. Nobody buys that. But not only that, they weren't even original. They adopted one of the gods of Egypt. One of the gods that God systematically showed to be insufficient when all of the cattle of Egypt died and yet all of the Israels lived. In fact, if you go to the Smithsonian right now, they've got this, uh, I think it's a picture of a bull. You may have that one back there. There it is. If you go to the Smithsonian right now, they've got this ancient Egypt belief uh, ritual and religion section. And Ellis and I were walking through this a few months ago. This is a bull. The eyeball creeps me out. 
I don't know what to do with that. Did somebody add that later? It doesn't seem like it should be preserved that well. But nonetheless, they've x-rayed it, and it's just this pile of bones sitting in. But this bull had the best life in Egypt at about the time that we're reading. It was massaged, given this wonderful food, better water than the people who lived there. And yet, what does God do? He crushes every one of them. I can't show you Isis because there are no appropriate pictures of her. But Isis was the god of healing. And yet boils pop out across all of the Egyptians. Ra, most of us who went to public school know Ra. He was the sun god, the most worshipped second only to Pharaoh. And God in the last plague prior to this one says, No, you have no authority here. My people will have light and yours will have darkness. Systematically, God broke away everything that Pharaoh could have hoped in. And now God goes to Pharaoh himself. And this is one of the most unique things about this last plague. We see this in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out. There's no staff being raised. There's no proclamation. God is going personally to bring wrath just as God came personally in his son to bring mercy. Do you see that? Judgment and mercy do not disagree with one another. They work in tandem. That's not the issue. Point number three. Any assurance other than Christ will be lacking. We can look at all of those gods and say, that is crazy, that is primitive, I would never do that. We can look at the Israelites while they're getting the Ten Commandments, worshiping this golden calf and say, that's crazy primitive, I would never do that. They were just creating idols in their culture like we do. Ours are just cleaner and more widely accepted. We have given ourselves the idol of rationalism. Or we have given ourselves the idol of comparison. The idol of morality. And all we do is bow down to that. And it doesn't look like a cow. So we pat ourselves and we say, well, I'm not some crazy animalistic mystic. I must be on the right track. No. Idolatry is the exact same thing that we see here. So when Moses writes this, he's not just telling his people, trust God through this. He's telling all people that God was in charge from the beginning. He is in charge until the end. He is worth your trust today. And if you don't think idolatry is a thing, talk to an 8 to 48 year old about season 10 of Fortnite. Because some budgets changed in this little place about two weeks ago when season 10 dropped. Our idols may not be a bull. They're two-dimensional pixels that we run after or anything else. Every enemy and adversary that is opposed to God and his people and his rule will utterly be crushed by a God who is sovereign over all. 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ, through Christ, Always leads us, his people who have trusted in him, in triumphal procession. What that means is, in Christ, God is leading us in victory. We are not walking in despair. We are not walking in defeat. Yes, the world will try to beat us up. Yes, the enemy will try to destroy us, will try to crush us. But God has guaranteed that his people will make it through till the end. So I close out with this. Probably the biggest question most people have when they read this text, regardless of whether or not you've been going to church your whole life, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, this is your first time visiting. Why didn't God just punish Pharaoh? 
That's the question when we read this that I think most of us end up asking. Why did God end up killing the firstborn of this poor little girl at the handmill? Why? We want this world to make sense. We do. We try to make it make sense all the time. And every one of us agree with justice. It's, it's why on YouTube, instant karma videos have the highest views of all time. Because when you see this bully walking through the school like popping a kid's head into a locker and then the kid randomly sneezes and his elbow knocks the kid out at your home. You're like, yes, he deserved it. Finally, the little guy gets a win. David versus Goliath, the sneeze saved his life. That's how we look at the world and we cheer that on. Why? Because we think that justice is good and right, that things should be fair, that bad things should not happen to good people. And I agree. Here's the only problem. Bad things don't happen to good people. Correction. Bad things happen to a good person once. In all of history, bad things happen to a good person once. And that was when the only good person to ever truly be a good person stretched his arms out this wide and gave his life so that those who were not good could be seen in his blood to be something they are not, which is fully good. Romans 3.22 puts it this way. For there is no distinction. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what your education is. It doesn't matter where you were born. In this area, there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you were born in Egypt at this time or you're a kid that's about to be born five seconds from now. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means declared righteous by his grace as a gift. And where does this gift come from? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as as payment. God used that Passover lamb as payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. It shows that God is fully just and he is fully merciful. It shows that merit is not what we want to run after, but mercy is And I can play this out real easy. Stokes, you can go ahead and come up. How many of you guys use Amazon for your shopping now? Come on, everybody does. Okay. Now, for those of us, how many of you have a Prime account? Okay. Oh, wow. The same, of course. All right. Who doesn't have a Prime? All right. So when you go to buy something on Amazon, what do you do? You type it into the search bar. I need a baptismal. Boop, 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 boop. Not many results, but you get the ones you get. And then you start looking at the item. And what's the first thing you do? Well, first you filter it prime only because I'm not waiting more than two days, right? I deserve this, right? Our, Our merit begins to show up very quickly on Amazon. No, what do we do? We look at the stars. And we look at a couple of things. We look at how high the ratings are. Five stars, you better believe it. Oh, wait, two reviews. We know the business did that. You're not fooling me, all right? But if there's enough numbers and there's enough stars, you're drawing me in. It's exactly what we do. We walk around in our lives giving ourselves stars and looking around at the people around us and saying, you get a star and you get a star. You're at four and a half and you're at three, but that's okay. Keep trying. We run around giving each other ratings, but the reality is this. God has only ever given one positive rating to someone who tried to earn it. One positive rating has ever been given to God by someone who tried to earn it. And that was his son. And his son on the cross looks out at you. And he says, 
you'll never earn five stars. Even if I erased all of the reviews of your thoughts and your words and your deeds, if I gave you a blank slate, in no time you'd have a negative review. But what I'm not, I, I'm not just going to erase your past history. Here's my login. Here's my password. Just type it in. I've paid for this account so that I can give it to you. And when you get this account, you don't just get the stars that come with it. Five stars and it will always be five stars. You don't just get the stars. You get the review of God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. But on top of that, you get all of the prophets of my mercy that come when somebody sees and comes to the page that you are drawing them to because of the flavor of my mercy. The only way we can appreciate the mercy of God is by realizing that merit would never have done it. That every one of us are in need before a Savior. And the good news is that when we're given that login and we're given that password, when those stars are given to our account, we remember that we never could have earned them in the first place, so we don't live our lives trying to earn anything. What we do is we just tell people, hey, just so you know, my God bought enough accounts for any who would come to him. And I want you to know the freedom that it is where I'm not worried about what everyone thinks of me, how everybody would rate me because I'm only worried about one. And he's already approved me through his son. So we live lives of abandon for the glory of God. And just like little Forrest, who was launched because of the coming wrath of a couple of counselors into the great beyond, we make it home alive. And we have a great story to tell. And if you run into Forrest, he lives here. He will tell you the story of the day he almost died. The day the judgment of two counselors came down upon him and he never felt closer to the Lord than he did in that moment. And God not only preserved him and sent him home, but he gave him a story to tell. And this morning, we're going to listen to two stories of the goodness of God in their lives. But before we go to the story to tell, we're going to respond to the story that has already been told. The broken body of Christ and the broken blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the words that you have given us in 1 Corinthians. You tell us that what we received from the Lord, Paul says, what I received from the Lord, I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, our merit could never earn this. It is simply the mercy of God. And so, Father, as we come, those of us who are trusting in you to receive the bread and the juice, I pray that we would see you for who you are. That you would remind us of the great sacrifice of your son, the Passover lamb. And that it would cause us to cry out anew. Not for a mercy that would save us. If we've responded to the gospel, that has been done. But your mercies which are new day after day, which we need day after day. May we come and receive the mercy that you will offer through your son. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and stand next. If you like what you heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at midtreechurch.com.